So good morning. Those of you who I don't know, my name is Mark Lanier and it is an honor to have you in our class this morning. Thank you for being here. If you're watching via the wonders of the internet, thank you for joining us there. If uh, uh, you, you don't know what we're talking about, you're going to catch on pretty quickly. This morning, you're all in seminary. This is a graduate level course. This is your chance. I think we'll be sending out seminary certificates. Uh, talk to Brent about those and be sure he's got one for you uh, as soon as class is over. There is, there is no exam, so you're guaranteed to pass unless you sleep through this, in which event your neighbor is under a student obligation to report you to Brent and you will not get your certificate. So what we're talking about today is something that is going to be invigorating for your mind and hopefully inspirational for your spirit and hopefully transformational for your life. Because we're talking about God. We're talking about who He is what he is, and why it makes any difference at all to you and me. We're going to delve into how we know this. And I want to start with a general concept. Do you know the word taxonomy? Taxonomy. No, it is not the study of taxis. Taxonomy is the science of classifying things. We love as human beings to classify things. My daughters have classified jokes. There are funny jokes. There are dad jokes. Not to be confused with funny jokes. There are inappropriate jokes, and there are stupid jokes, which sometimes are the dad jokes. We just classify things. Taxonomy is the science of classifying things. You can have the taxonomy of economics, where you classify economic concepts. Business organizations and structures are subject to taxonomy. You can study all sorts of things and classify them. We're most often familiar with the word from its affiliation with biology. The biologists have classified different life forms. They'll say that a whale is a mammal, but a largemouth bass is a fish. Whales give birth to live offspring. Fish lay eggs. Mammals give uh, uh, nourishment to their infants through mother's milk and mammary glands. The mammal part of that word comes from the same root as mammary glands, which come from the same root, the Latin root, as mama. 
mammals have uh, hair. So, well, I'm seeing a whale with hair. Well, next time you're riding one, look at the blowhole because there is some. Bass just lay eggs. Sometimes they eat the eggs. Bass are not mammals. Mammals are not fish. We have amphibians. We have uh, um, uh, all sorts of different classes and, and organisms that fall into different structures and groups. Sometimes the scientists change those groups and what it means to be one or the other. But it's all part of our human brain, which is hardwired to see patterns and to make associations. It's what we do. We tend to figure out, oh, this is one of those, or this is not one of those. You don't have to look further than our culture in the United States of America to see how we classify things. There are some people who call themselves Republicans who believe that the Democrats are godless communists. There are some people who call themselves Democrats who believe that the Republicans are hypocritical, harsh, judgmental people who don't know what love thy neighbor means. We'll classify people by groups of skin color. We'll classify people by their educational levels. We'll classify people by their age levels. We love to classify and do things and, and, and make people fit into the buckets of our classifications. Now, why do I bring this up in a discussion about the nature of God? Because I want to ask you this question. If, if having body hair, uh, live birth, um, I think three hearing bones on uh, the, the ear, I think there are a number of different things now that make you a mammal or that make you a, a fish or that make you a reptile. And mammals are warm-blooded. Fish are cold-blooded. You know, if, if, if you want to do that, here's the question. What makes God, God? What is it? What is it about him that makes him God? And I'm using the word him as if God has a gender but gender is a very human word. Does God have male gender? Does he have a XY chromosome scheme? Now, historically, the ancients thought that God, what made a God, God, was really just being a supersized human. Someone who's like a human but on a, a, a super a star level. Can leap tall buildings in a single bound. Faster than a speeding bullet. 
more powerful than an express train. You know, he's a superhero with super intellect and super size and super strength and super longevity. That's what they did. All they were doing was trying to figure out how God fits into the association of our brains. Which bucket do we put him in? Well, I guess we put him in the human bucket, but he's God, so he's got to be in the superhuman bucket. I don't want to force God into my bucket of thinking. I don't want to force God into how I can associate him with some other concept I've already got. Dr. Bob, I don't want to anchor him, to use your psychological term you've taught me, where you tie him down to something that's already in your brain, and that's how you learn it. I want to be different. Because I think we have to be different if we're truly going to understand God more than we will otherwise. When we try to restrict God to the buckets that are in our head, we are limiting him and we will have a limited view of God and a limited God is an idol. And we need to strip those idols from our brain and our heart and our worship. So if the big question is this, for starters, what is the nature of God? What's what's the stuff of God? XY chromosome? Male genitals? Because we're going to call him a him? I mean, what is the stuff? Is God even made up of atoms? No. No. Everything you and I are is, everything you're sitting on, everything we're standing on, everything we're breathing is. See, the the ancients, Israel's neighbors, thought that God just filled in gaps of things they didn't understand. And they put God smack dab in the middle of nature. They couldn't understand why the thunder that's rolling across the sky is making a noise that sounds loud and angry. Atmospheric science was not their strong point. And they did not understand the origin, the genesis, what causes thunder. So they would hear, oh, thunder, oh, that must be the thunder god. Israel's immediate neighbors, Baal. Go far up north into Scandinavia, Thor. Slamming his hammer around, making all that rumbling. Go to Greece. They don't understand why the sun seems to rise from, let's see, that's north, rise from the east. I think that's east. Rise from the east every day and set in the west. They didn't understand that the sun is actually here and our planet is turning circles around it. 
in a rotational pattern at the same time. So they just figure that's got to be God. It's going to be Apollo who's got some chariot that's so bright that he flies across the sky every day. That's God. So what is the nature of God? Doctors and scientists need to understand the nature of a human. They need to be able to dissect corpses and do autopsies and, 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 and dissect animals and, and other things to, to better understand how the body works so that they can cure disease. Do we need to put God in the lab and cut him open so we can cure him if he gets sick? No. We can't take God and put him under a microscope and figure out his, his uh, 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 cellular structure. Even if it's a fancy electron microscope, which by the way, that picture is not. It's an electronic microscope, but not an electron microscope, but it doesn't matter. You're not going to be able to put God under a microscope and figure out what is it that makes him God? What, what, does he have like super DNA? No. He's something beyond the physical of this universe. What is the nature of God is, is really something that can't be answered by the buckets and the associations and the patterns and the knowledge that we've got in this universe. It can't. I think there's another question that's part of this big question, and that is, how do we understand who God is? I suggested three weeks ago when I started this lesson that we can draw metaphors and we can draw analogies to help us make sense of difficult material, and we can, and that's a a good way to, to begin to grasp things. But analogies and metaphors break down at some level. So I want to throw it out to you this way. Think through this with me for a moment about God. Do you know how many stars are in the known universe? (laughs) Richard, a lot. Ding, ding, ding. You are the winner. (laughs) Do you know how many stars? I have to say in the known universe because the universe is expanding all the time. Back in the day of King David, if you're just lying on a hillside in the northern hemisphere, scientists estimate you can see three to 4,000 stars, depending on how bright the night sky is. It's a lot of stars. Then science got telescopes. They could figure out there are more stars than that. And then we sent telescopes into outer space, and we figured out there are more stars than that. Then we started getting star signatures through electronic means, not simply optical means. A conservative estimate. By the way, nobody is sitting there counting them. You get one, two, three. That's not the way it's done. They try to figure out how many galaxies there are. Because some of these far distant galaxies, you can't figure out how many stars are in those galaxies. You're just barely catching the galaxy. 
But we know that galaxies like the Milky Way galaxy are made up of stars. So they figure out how many stars in the average galaxy. How many galaxies are there? And they do the math. A conservative, not a liberal. I didn't go for the big number. A conservative estimate of the number of stars. 10 to the 22nd power. There's a name for that. That's in, in America, the name is different in Europe. That's 10 sextillion stars. Conservative estimate. You say, wow, that's a lot of suns. A lot of stars. And it is. Do you have any clue how many 10 sextillion is? It's a massive, unthinkable number. And do you know what all those stars are made up of? Atoms. Just like you and me. The atom is incredibly small. Incredibly small. Let me tell you how small an atom is. If I'm going to pile up 10 sextillion atoms... As many atoms as there are conservatively stars. You want to see what it'd look like? Here, I, I got a picture of it. You see inside that frame? Oh, gee, you can't. Because it's so small, you cannot see 10 sextillion atoms all piled up together. 40 sextillion atoms, four times that much. Four times is the size of a dust mite, which if you've got a good little um, magnifying. magnifying glass, you could see. So here you've got 10 sextillion stars, by the way. More stars than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. They've done the math. Far more stars. Ten sextillion. Ain't that much sand. Not even in Lubbock. <laughs> Ten sextillion stars made up of atoms. And just ten sextillion atoms is four times smaller than a dust mite. Do you know how many atoms are in the known universe? And those atoms have little electrons flying around them at such a speed, scientists can't even tell you where an electron is at any point in time. But if you put all of this together, you understand there is a God who knows where every electron is on every atom in every dust mite sized clump along with every star, every planet around the stars, every human being here, every human being throughout all eternity, past, present, and future. And he knows where every electron is rotating at any point in any moment in time. That's God. I mean, that is it. So this big question, what is the nature of God? 
it's something we can't fathom. So we got some choices here. One choice is, let's reduce God down to something we understand. Let's just make God smaller than he really is. So that we can feel warm and fuzzy about how smart we are. Because we have figured out God. And the church has done this historically. The church has devised what I consider to be the pyramid scheme of how God handles history. Because we can't fathom a God who could actually be doing all of this himself. And so we figure, well, it's a pyramid deal. See, there's God, but God's got these archangels that are just below him. And these archangels have like under angels below them. And those under angels are in charge of the guardian angels. And the guardian angels are in charge of you and me. Or at least looking out for you and me. And so with that idea, humanity has stripped God down to where the guardian angel's watching over me. And if there's a problem he can't handle, he goes to the under angels. They try to handle it. If they can't, they bump it up line to the archangels. If the archangels can't do it, they bump it up the line. God, here's one that's going to need your attention. Now the Bible teaches that there are angels, but there are angels there to do God's direction, not to be the informant for God, because God's not smart enough or big enough to know what's going on. That's not our God. That's not God. The, 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 the church has come up with schemes where God's got such big pressing problems. Instead of talking to God, we're going to talk to saints or, 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 or others that are dead and gone on in hopes that they can handle the problems because God's too busy. I love to talk theology with Dr. Bob. He's one of my best friends, has been for 30 years. And he approaches the world with, his last name is Leone. He approaches the world with what I call Leone vision. He sees everything slightly different than the rest of us. In ways that are, are invigorating and so much fun. And he said to me one time, he says, you know, Mark... I might even pray about that. And I said, well, what do you mean you might pray about that? And he says, well, I might. He says, here's the thing. There's a shot that God's only going to listen to X number of my prayers. And I don't want to waste them on something that's not really important. (laughs) And he's laughing. Bob always goes for the joke. But in his joke, he's pointing out something very insightful about human nature. We have this tendency to limit God. And that's what, I mean, look at what God revealed of himself in Scripture. Look at what Isaiah 40 verse 12 says. Isaiah 40 verse 12 says, God has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span. The Hebrew span, spread your fingers out. It's the distance between your thumb and your pinky. All of those 10 sextillion stars, God measures them like this. Let me see. 
Yeah, there it is. Now, if you take that passage of Scripture and do not understand that God's using a picture, an analogy, a metaphor to tell us something, you're going to miss what God is telling you. God's not telling you that the universe truly is the distance between his pinky and thumb. And from that, you should not waste your time and energy saying, well, how many light years is the known universe? Okay, it's that many light years. From that, we can mathematically calculate the size of God's hand. And if that's the size of his hand, then mathematically we can figure out exactly how tall he is. Give or take a margin of error of a few inches. Assuming he's got a well-proportioned body. That is not what he's telling us in that passage. He's using an expression, a metaphor, a picture, an image to tell you all that is there is nothing compared to God. And it's not just God's size. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they're more than the sand. Then look at this. I awake and I'm still with you. In other words, this magnificent, huge God cares about you and cares about me. See, we start understanding the greatness of God. And now those problems that you and I have, that just seem to be a little too big for God to handle. What? No such thing. Well, yeah, but he's got more important things to do. He's got a universe to run. There are electrons going around a star that is 25,000 light years away from here, and one of them may go haywire if God's not paying attention. What? No. Absolutely not. The nature of God is one that not only grasps all of this for all eternity, but the nature of God is the nature of someone with no beginning and no ending. Like a circle. No beginning and no ending. I told you, you're in graduate school today. This is a seminary class. Here's your, here's one of your words. Okay, you ready? This is the aseity of God. Now you may be looking at that word, the aseity. First of all, some of you, are looking at it saying, is that misspelled? After all, I before E, except after C. Now you've got to change that rule. I before E, except after C, and when you're spelling, a sigh of T. <laughs> and the reason why it's not I-E, but it's E-I, is because a sigh of T is made up of a couple of Latin words. A sigh of T is made up of a, C, a T. And some people even call it a seity. The aseity or aseity of God, a means from in Latin. If you're absent from school, you're away from school. A or ab from. The SE finds its way into our English language through the word self. 
And then ITE is just an ending we use that indicates a condition or quality. I've got an issue right now. It's my winter weight. I call it, I am, I have chubbity. <laughs> it is the condition or quality of being chubby. I have chubbity. Aciety. Aciety is the condition or the quality of being of and from yourself. Nobody made God. There was never a time where there wasn't a God. Now you're saying, well, I just have trouble understanding that. Yes, you do, because you are a created being and I'm a created being. And that's all we can really understand and grasp. And that's why science has an issue. Trying to explain the Big Bang. Well, what was there before the Big Bang? Well, it was a small uh, uh, size-wise collection of all that was there. Then it explodes into this universe that we've got. But then everyone wants to know, okay, well, where did that stuff come from that exploded? Because we think of, and the answer is, well, maybe it was a previous universe that had contracted after it had expanded. Okay, fine. Well, where did it come from? And we're constantly trying to find it because that's all we know. And science can offer some nebulous answers of, well, there was a spontaneous positive creation along with a spontaneous negative creation. And it's like a positive two plus a negative two equals zero. There's still nothing here. Well, no, I don't accept that. I mean, I'm something. So what is it that made the expressions of the positive and the negative? And we're trying to chase that down. And children do the same with God. I asked my mom. I remember asking my mom. I remember where we were. I was in third grade. Where did God come from? Everything comes from something in my brain and in my experience and in my past. But the society of God says, no, he didn't come from anything. He's himself, has always been, will always be, is unchanging. The one who was and is and is to come. God has no beginning and end. So if our big question is, what is the nature of God? The big answer to me is, how does God reveal himself? Because I'm not going to grasp the God of eternity. I'm not going to grasp the God who holds the universe between his finger and his thumb and yet knows the number of hairs on my head and when a sparrow falls on this one dirt clod going around this one sun in this one galaxy. Bless you. So that's why we've got to see how God reveals himself. You know, Francis Schaeffer said, and I don't remember where he said it, and I need to, but I read it 35 years ago, so cut me a little slack. Um, but, but he said something to this effect, because the concept I've got, it made a big impression on me. We cannot know God truly, uh, fully. We cannot know God fully. But we can know him truly. In other words, there's no way our three and a half pound brains that are the size of our fists, there's no way they're going to comprehend this God with no beginning and no ending. 
There's no way they're going to comprehend this God who holds the universe within his hands and yet knows the rotation of every atom. There's no way. But just because we can't know him fully does not mean we can't know him truly. Because God has chosen to reveal himself in the Bible. And so we read the Bible, we try to understand God, and we try to express it. But even when we're doing that, we're going to have breakdowns. Because the best we can do at times are analogies. And some analogies are better than others, but all of them break down. I talked last week about the idea of, or three weeks ago, the Trinity and analogies. That God is one and God is three, like an apple, which is peel, flesh, and seed. Well, that's not really good if you press it too far, because the peel itself is not a complete apple. But God the Father is complete God. See, it kind of breaks down. The expression, well, God is like H2O. He's, uh, uh, you know, it can be solid, it can be liquid, or it can be gas, steam. Well, yeah, but that breaks down. You don't find solid, liquid, and gas H2O molecules occupying the same space at the same time in those same states. And yet God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit do. So I like to use the metaphors and the analogies and the proclamations and the parables and the figures of speech that God gave us as my primary source for understanding the nature of God and who He is. Now, I'm not saying that the church hasn't done a smart thing in trying to grow and understand God in fresh new ways. We do. We put doctrines together. We put creeds together that are the result of of the Spirit leading the church in growing to understand God. That's where we get this concept of Trinity. But while we get the word there, the concept is much older. The concept is in the Bible. No, the word Trinity, it's not in the Bible. I agree. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible. But the Trinity, the idea, the truth of the Trinity is in the Bible. Three weeks ago in the first lesson, and if you're watching this on the internet or you missed it, you can go back because of our wonderful internet and AV crew and everybody who works so hard to get this thing going. And you can see that Trinity is a word that came about in Middle English. It was, it, 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 it was actually a word out of the Old French. When William the Conqueror, in I believe 1066, came from France to conquer England, the courts of England used as their official language French. The Germanic Anglo-Saxon tongues were deemed vulgar. It's like cussing. It just wasn't high and mighty enough. That that was one of the original reasons why, supposedly, the Bible should not be translated into English. It's just too common and vulgar. But Trinity is an old French word, Trinité, from Trinitas in the Latin. 
And Trinitas is just a word that comes from tribus in Latin. It, It means three, tribus does. Trinitas means threeness. So Trinity just means the threeness of God. So while the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, the Trinity is in the Bible. The threeness of God is certainly in the Bible. We looked in the previous class at the Old Testament expressions of the threeness of God. But let's consider in this class the New Testament expressions. I've pulled a few for you. There are a lot more. If you don't get the written copy of this lesson, email Brent and he'll get it to you. Ultimately, it goes on the internet as well. But the the New Testament doesn't all of a sudden teach that there are three gods. The New Testament is emphatic. One God. That's all. Look at the James 2.19 passage. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The you do well there is a colloquial phrase in Greek that in Lubbock could be translated whoop de doo <laughs> You believe that God is one. Well, whoop de doo Even the demons know that. And they at least shudder over it. You know, that's, that's, that's a gimme. That's what James is saying. That's a no-brainer. The New Testament does not teach that all of a sudden, there are now three gods. There's not. There's one God. Say, well, James was a strange dude. We get our theology from Paul. Well, Paul was a a monotheist as well. Paul says in Galatians 3.20, God is one. Romans 3.30, since God is one. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God. 1 Corinthians 8.4, there is no God but one. Uno, that's it. Solamente uno, only one. Just about exhausted my Spanish. I can order the cheese enchilada plate as well. But other than that, I'm about gone. But it doesn't matter the language you use. There's one God. Just one. When a lawyer came up to Jesus and said to Jesus, what's the most important of the commandments in the law, the Torah? Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6.4. And not by saying it's wrong. It's right. It says the most important commandment Jesus said is, Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, the Lord our God, Adonai Eloheinu. The Lord is one. Adonai Echad. One. Echad. One. 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 There's one God. That's all. The God that holds the universe between his pinky and his thumb is one God. It doesn't take a legion of gods to pull this off. 
It doesn't take Poseidon to be God of the sea. Apollo, God of the sun and the sky. Athena, the warrior god. Eros, the god of love. You don't have to have a pantheon of gods to take care of humanity in the problems of the world. One God. One. And yet, even as the New Testament teaches that there is one God, the New Testament teaches very clearly Jesus is God. Say, so, well, I don't know about that. We'll read it. Well, I've read it. We'll read it again and read it with me. Let's do it together. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Jesus, Paul says, was in the form of God. God is in the genitive case there in the Greek. This is God form. He was the form. He was God. Not make-believe God. Not a picture image of God. Not kind of like God. Not God minus. In his form, it was God. The form is God. Because the man, the, the God is God. He does not account equality with God. Something he had to hold on to, but he emptied himself and took the form of a human. This is what God did. God emptied himself and took on a human form. Jesus is God. So when you take the James passage, you believe God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Jesus is God. Look at those Romans passage. Romans 10, 9 and 12 through 13, because I want you to get it in the flow. I want you to understand it. Paul says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, and he quotes Isaiah, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The name of the Lord there is, no, look, that's Yahweh. That is the Lord who gave his name to Moses from the burning bush and said, I am who I am. Moses said, well, they're going to want to know your name, God. When I go tell him, you said, come on, what is your name? No question. That's what Paul is talking about. The name of God that will save. Everyone who calls on the name of God will be saved. And it's in that context that he says, if you confess with your mouth. This is how you call on the Lord who called Moses out of Egypt. The Lord who on Sinai gave the tablets and the law. The Lord who created the heavens and the earth. The God who created all. Here's how we know him. Here's how we call on his name. We confess that Jesus is him. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. We confess 
that Jesus is Lord. And we believe that God raised him from the dead. Paul's blowing your mind here if you're tracking with him. Jesus is God. And God raised Jesus from the dead. So it's not making a lot of sense to me. Good. Because you and I and our little brains aren't supposed to fathom the magnificent, monstrously huge nature of God. And if we can, we have reduced him down to something he's not. And isn't this the whole point of, of Matthew? All this took place. Mary being a, a conceiving of the Holy Spirit. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The Lord, Jesus, speaking by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. This is Jesus God speaking of his own incarnation. There's only one God. Jesus, God speaking, Imanu, with us, El, God, Imanu, El, or as we say in America, Emmanuel, God with us, God with us, not sort of God, not part God, not God Junior, not one day God, but God in all of his society, God without beginning even though he set aside his godness to be born as a human. So the scripture is clear. God is one, that Jesus is God. That doesn't mean the Father's not God. The Father is God too. Look at what John 5.18 says. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. God, the Father that Jesus prayed to, the one God. One God. God the Father, God the Son. By the way, our non-Trinity friends, I'd love to hear how they explain John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. A clear instruction that Jesus is not only God, but the only God who makes known the Father who is God that we cannot see. This should blow your mind. This should be a bomb going off in your face. God is one. Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Some know the Holy Spirit is this force. It's this impersonal force of God moving. No, that's not in the Bible. That's just made up by people who don't want to believe in the Trinity and can't grasp it and want to reduce God down to something they understand. I mean, look at these passages. The heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The Spirit of God, he saw him descending like a dove. Huh. Doesn't sound like electricity to me. Just some impersonal power or force. But let's read further. Jesus says in John 15, when the helper comes, the Spirit calls him a helper. Parakletos in the Greek. 
Someone who's called alongside, a counselor, an advocate. Someone to walk with you and help you. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Seems he's got purpose, he's got thought, he's got abilities, he's got purpose, he's got mission. He's doing something personal. Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do you grieve an impersonal force? I mean, I had some trouble with my computer in the last uh, presentation. I think it's because I said something bad about electricity and it was coming back to spite me. I grieved the electricity. So only when I apologized, oh, electricity, I'm so very sorry I said something bad about you. Would you please flow anew? No, you don't grieve some impersonal force. The Holy Spirit's not impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is, is, is real, is a being. Paul says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts, the Spirit, the Spirit is searching my heart, knows He who searches the hearts, he who searches hearts, knows what it is, what is the mind of the Spirit. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, searches my heart, knows it because the Spirit's interceding for the saints according to the will of God. This is, this is a being, this isn't some impersonal force. So where does that leave us in these last two minutes? The doctrine of the Trinity is one of the reasons I believe in God. Because the God who is the God that we're talking about should not make, should not fit easily into my categories and my thinking. I need to, to, to pray and to struggle and to understand. And I'm going to understand him truly, but I will not understand him fully. And I'm going to stand amazed before our Lord, whose thoughts are not my thoughts and whose ways are not my ways. Beyond that, I'm going to express his unity. Now look at this, an unusual passage. Jesus is about to die. He's in Gethsemane. And he prays, God, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, So the world may believe you've sent me. The Trinity, the unity and the diversity and the way we should unite, the way the Trinity is one, will reflect something that will teach the world about God. We live in a world where we categorize. We live in a world where the political divide is so vast in this country that people have lost civility over it. We live in a world where there are still racial tensions We live in a world where there are economic tensions and divisions between the haves and the have-nots, where there are cultural divisions, where there are language divisions, where there are geographical divisions. And when the church can understand the unity of the threeness of God, 
then the church will express that unity amongst ourselves in a way that this world cannot fathom because it seems unnatural. And they'll say, I don't understand how you can love that person. I don't understand why that's your brother and your sister. Y'all are so different. Because we're united by the blood of Jesus. Doesn't mean I agree with everything. Doesn't mean I can't. Look, I've got a Christian brother over here who I email back and forth with almost every day. Many of the things we agree on, many of the things we don't, he doesn't back away from me. I don't back away from him, but it doesn't change my love for him. And his love for me. That love is found in the Trinity. God had it. He didn't make us because he needed us to love him. He had the love from the get-go. And so finally, I will worship him as such. I'm going to worship him as he's been revealed to me. I'm going to worship God as Father, as Creator, as Lord. I'm going to worship God as Savior, Redeemer, and Son, as wisdom, strength, inspiration, and spirit. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. Three, one, I worship Him. And I trust Him with my life. Because who else has a CV like that? Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Father, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters that hear this message. Knit our hearts together, Lord. May we express to this world the unity that is you, the one true God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Through the blood of Jesus, amen. See you guys.